Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ to you this morning. Welcome to church. Now, you might be feeling weary this uh, towards the end of July Sunday. You might be on cloud nine, but we hope that today that you would find truth in God's word and you'd find rest and joy in Jesus and the good news that he has come for you today. So welcome to church, everyone. Today, we're going to be continuing our study through the the letters of the Apostle John. And today we're looking at 2 John. And James is going to be opening that up for us a little bit later on in the service. I want to now invite you, if you have a Bible near to you, if you'd like to take that and open to the book of 2 John. If you don't know where that is, it's almost all the way to the end, a small little book. We're going to be reading through the whole thing. Second John, the book of Second John. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll show up on the screen next to me. So from verses 1 to 13, the Apostle John writes these words. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Well, over to James. Good morning, BRBC. It's great to be together this morning. Before I get started, just want to say a massive thank you for all your prayers and support. Um, uh, a lot of you know, um, got some mystery health stuff going on. The doctors are still trying to figure it out. I've got tests and scans coming up this week. Um, I'm feeling a little bit better the last week, 10 days or so, hence why I'm here, but still want to get this figured out. So please can. Please keep praying for me and my family as well. Really, really appreciate that. Now, this morning, 2 John, this is all about guarding. It's about watching. It's about protecting. John wants his readers to guard the life of the church on the inside and to guard against danger on the outside. Stay on your guard. Now, I want to introduce you to a family member, someone who lives in my household that you have probably never met before. It's got a tail, four legs, fluffy 
mostly white with patches of brown. That's right, it's my cat. His name is Glenn. Now, I love our cat, Glenn. He's not like your normal cat. He's not like one of those snobby cats that makes you work really hard for uh, their attention. And he's, he's not a cat that sleeps all day and doesn't engage with family life. He does. He wants to be in the thick of it. Now, one of my favorite characteristics about Glenn is that he considers himself something of a guard cat. And so you'll see this most obviously when we go on one of our family walks. So the back of our garden, there's a gate and that backs on straight onto a footpath and footpaths lead all over the place. So we can, we can get to school, we can get to church, we can go on a blackberry hunt or a combine harvester hunt. And whenever we go on a walk together, you will find Glenn, either 10 or 20 yards in front of us or 10 or 20 yards behind us. And he's always looking out for danger. He's, he's always a uh, scoping the landscape to see if there's anything that's going to be a threat to his family. And, and you'll see him do this. If, somebody, if, if there's somebody who comes anywhere near us, you know, going past them on the footpath, he'll, he'll puff up and get upset. Or if a friendly dog comes a little bit too close, Glenn will, will get his claws out, he will hiss and he'll spit, he'll get all upset about anybody coming near us. And especially, he's going to guard the children, my kids, he wants to look after them. So he's always guarding. Now I've documented this, this last week, when we were on our walks after tea, and maybe this gives you a flavour of what he's like. Watch this. So, we're out on a walk, to me and the kids, on a, on a combine hunt. And of course, we have somebody with us. Come on, Glenn, this way. Oh, he's come most of the way with us today, just on the way home. There are the kids and Gwent, steaming ahead. But somebody's keeping a watch. <laughs> Come on, Glenn. Come on. <laughs> and you'll never guess who's behind us. <laughs> and again. See, you see what he's like. He's always watching. Listen to how, how I describe him. Glenn is protective. He knows what's important to him. He's on patrol. He stays watchful. He's vigilant. He's aware. He's awake. He's attentive. He's keen-eyed. He's hawk-eyed. He's sharp-eyed. He is on his guard. But what about Second John? Now follow me here. The immediate problem that John is addressing in both 2nd and 3rd John, like we looked at last week, is that of traveling teachers, that they were circulating among the churches. Now, now generally, they were received into the church and given hospitality in people's homes. But what happens if the teacher claimed to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, but taught false doctrine? you know, presented a skewed version of Jesus. Should they be received or not? Now, if 3rd John encourages genuine hospitality towards true teachers, good teachers, then 2nd John warns against receiving and encouraging such teachers into the life of the church. So, so if 3rd John celebrates a real and hearty welcome of true teachers, 2nd John 
sounds the alarm against giving space to such toxic teaching. So 2 John is all about John saying, watch out. I want you to guard the vitality and the life and the love on the inside of the church, but on the outside, stay on your guard as well. I want to see you flourishing in the same vein. I want to see what you're doing right now. Carry on, but do not give these deceivers an inch of influence or any room, not even a crack in the door. Stay on your guard. So the big question this morning is, how does uh, this letter of Second John call them to go about doing this guarding? I mean, how does John seek to protect this church? What does he want them to be mindful of and to watch out for? Now, we're going to see two dimensions in answering that question. He's going to say, guard the inside of the church and guard against the outside dangers. I mean, one thing to watch out for in the inside, one thing to, to grow, one thing to be mindful of, to watch out for on the inside, and then one thing to watch out for on the inside, on the outside. So, so before we jump in, let's have a look at the first three verses and ask some questions here. Let's read this, verses one to three. To the elder, uh, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us will be with, with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace will be with you from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and love. Finishes that welcome, truth and love. Rich, rich theological terminology going on there. But the question I want to ask is, well, who's the elder? Who's this elect lady? And who are her children? Now, let's think about the elder here. And without going into any deep and time-consuming debate, I'm going to say this, that I think the elder is the Apostle John. I mean, it, it makes sense that he was so well known by the local church that he, he doesn't need to mention his name. But he was also part of the local congregation and there's a leader there. So perhaps because he is one of the apostles of Jesus and he's known so well, they just give him the title of the elder. It's him. But what about this chosen lady or the elect lady, as my Bible reads, and her children? Well, I think we have two options here. Number one, that John is writing to a physical, a biological family unit. So it could be written to a woman who is a key figure in this local church. So with this view, her children are her physical children, biological children. And look right to the end of the letter in verse 13. It says, the children of your elect sister greet you. So that would be your sister and your nieces and nephews say hi. So that's one option. Second option, and is more likely in my mind, that John is writing to a spiritual family, the local church itself, a particular church. Now, this could be then a cryptic reference to the local church and its members. So the elect woman, the elect, the chosen lady is the church and the children are the members of that church. And so when John says in verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you, it's another church says hi and all of its members, they say hi. Now I side with this view for two reasons. Number one, think about the persecution that the early church is going through. Now, if the church is going through any kind of outside pressure from the authorities, then referring to it in this cryptic and hidden way would give some protection if the letter found its way into the wrong hands. No names are being used, 
but the readers completely understand what's going on. Second reason why I favour this for you is the imagery of the church being a chosen woman, an elect lady, fits with the church being the bride of Christ. You know, in a similar way, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes, uh, uh, calls the church in Rome. He says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. Very similar terminology and writing about a local church family. Now, that's the introduction. Let's jump into the meat of this letter. Let's have a look what he wants them to guard on the inside. And we're going to stitch these next few verses together inside the church. Verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So your translation might say, I, I have great joy when I see this, that what? You are walking in the truth. So John's encouragement is going to be about walking in what they have already been told. So let's keep building this. Verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady... Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. So, so John is saying here, I'm not going to tell you anything new here. You already know this. Just focus on doing what you already know what to do. I mean, there's a sense here that John is a, he's championing them. He's cheering them on. He's saying, keep going. I want you to picture sports day, a sports day, maybe a sports day growing up or you as a parent, grandparent, family friend, aunt, uncle, cousin have attended. Usually at a sports day at a school, you're going to find the loudest people at the sports day aren't necessarily the children. They're going to be the parents. Now, sometimes you can get those parents that are ultra competitive and it's not about taking part, but it's about winning. And they're screaming at their children to just keep going and try and win. And then you've got those other parents who are just delighted that their child managed to finish the race, race and not, not stop to pick daisies, pick their nose or hold their friend's hand. But what you will find is the parents can be loud, cheering and championing their children. Go on, keep going, don't stop, focus on what you're supposed to be doing. This is what John is saying to this church. Carry on. I want to see this. Go on. But why the joy? And don't don't stop doing what? Have a look at the end of verse 5 and verse 6. That we love one another. And this is love. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning. So that you should walk in it. Love one another. Here's the first thing, loud and clear, that he wants them to guard inside. Guard the love on the inside. Guard the love on the inside. Now, now we might have an immediate objection to this. Wait, 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 wait. We're Christians. Aren't we supposed to love people on the outside too? Isn't that supposed to be our focus? Well, absolutely. It's incredibly important and we can never neglect that. But taking into account what John says, it, this doesn't mean that we don't love people who aren't insiders. But here's the thing. We can only love people properly on the outside when we love each other properly on the inside. That's the place where the foundation and the soil in which a broader love can grow. Think about marriage, for example, when it's healthy and the problems are dealt with. There's a greater ability for that marriage to love the world around it, just as God intended. But, but when a marriage is unhealthy and the problems aren't talked about and aren't dealt with and left to fester, it's very difficult for that marriage to love the world around it well. Same applies right here. 
But I have a question. Okay, what, what does this love one another look like? I mean, what's this loving one another mean? Well, John has already beat this drum before, and he's explained it nice and clearly, only one page back in my Bible, to 1 John chapter 4. He's already told us. Verse 7 in chapter 4 and verse 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So John's answer to that question, what does love, what does loving one another look like? Well, you look to how God has loved you. I've got another question. How has God loved us? Well, John tells us in the next couple of verses. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So John's answer to the question, you want to know what loving one another looks like? Look at how God has loved you. You want to know how God has loved you? Look at how Jesus has loved you. The fullest expression of the love of God is in the face, in the person and the work of Jesus. All right, I've got another question. How has Jesus loved us. We want to drill into this. How has Jesus loved us? Well, I'm pleased you asked because I'm going to give you a snapshot. Jesus loves us unconditionally. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God shows us his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Secondly, Jesus loves us sacrificially and for our good. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse uh, 21. For our sake he made him to, him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Also, Jesus loves us with a forgiving kind of a love. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32. Be, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus also loves us unbreakably. Romans chapter 8 verses 38 and 39 famously read, For I am, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us, us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then just as John has said in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Jesus's love is shown to us with his death on the cross and also in his bodily resurrection. This is the love of God that was made manifest among us, that he sent his son into the world that we might live through him. That's Jesus's love. And that's a picture of what it means to love one another. So simply speaking, John wants to see this church that loves one another in such a way that they look, they smell, they walk, they act, they speak, they think, they behave like Jesus to one another. Joyfully loving like Jesus, sacrificially loving like Jesus, with forgiving relationships loving like Jesus. Now you might say that's a tall order, and it is, but for those of us who are in Christ, that love is yours in Christ. And John's point is, I want to see you carrying on in this. I want to see you fight for it. I want to see you guard this love in the church. Now, I want to bring this down to earth a little bit here and begin to think about, well, how do we go about this? What do we need to keep in mind? Well, I think there's a couple of key, key elements embedded into John's thinking and indeed the whole New Testament 
begin to help us understand this a little bit more. Firstly, in order to love one another well, recognize you, you do not put your feet up. When it comes to loving one another, do not put your feet up. You know, John uses the term to walk in the truth twice. The first thing here we have in chapter four, I want to see you walking in the truth. And then at the end of verse six, that you should walk in it. So this terminology of walking, we saw it in John three as well. It's huge in John's thinking. But think about how you walk. You don't put your feet up. You don't be lazy. What, what is walking? It's active. It's proactive. It's movement. I want to see you walking in this reality. Now think about how much this makes sense and even squares with our own experiences. Loving one another has a relational foundation, doesn't it? That's how loving one another, it, it has a relational foundation. Think about how relationships work. If you don't invest in relationships, if, if, if you don't take responsibility for them, you'll begin to see them go downhill. But when you invest into them, you take responsibility for them, that can be amazing. Let me use an illustration. Think about your garden. You know, at the beginning of lockdown, everybody was doing their gardens, or at least within Ruffham. People's lawns looked amazing. They had the time to do it. The edges were done. The hanging baskets looked stunning. There were sunflowers, cosmos being planted. These gardens looked amazing. But, but you know, with any garden, you leave it for a couple of months. The, the grass is going to turn into a meadow. Weeds are going to grow. So without attention, the garden's going to go downhill, but with attention, it's going to be something that the rest of the world says, that looks amazing. And the same is true when it comes to loving one another and the relationships within our own church family. When we put our feet up, things begin to deteriorate. But if we are walking in the truth and actively investing, it will be the kind of relationships that the rest of the world looks on and says, whoa, that looks unreal. I want some of that. Second thing I think we're seeing here, embedded into his thinking right here, and, and also the New Testament, is when it comes to loving one, an one another, take personal responsibility. Take personal responsibility. You know, John's writing collectively to a church family, we've decided right here. And so when he's writing collectively, he's also addressing individuals within the church. Collectively means he's talking to the individuals, right? And he's encouraging each of them to take responsibility for loving one another. Take this upon yourself for you to walk in as well. Let, let me illustrate this to you again. Think about the difference between how you treat a rental car and how you would treat your own car. I think most of us have had a rental car before, maybe when we were traveling or, uh, or maybe it was a courtesy car from the garage. But I'm guessing you're not going to treat it in the same way that you treat your own car. Generally, what people do, it, I've never heard of anybody wet, washing a rental car. I've, uh, I've never heard of anyone changing the oil or checking the tire pressure. I've never heard of that. But, but when it's your own car, you, you take responsibility for it. You take personal responsibility. You might even rev a rental car, drive it faster than you would your own car because you want to look after your own car. I'm guessing that's how people tend to treat them differently. And we can bring that same mentality to the life of the church. We can treat church like a rental car, not taking respons personal responsibility for it. Now, look, I'll give you my money, and this is what I expect in return. And if I don't, I'm not satisfied with this, it's not going to look good. That's kind of a consumer entitled way of looking at church and all of its relationships. Or you can treat it like you do your own car. I care about this. 
I'm going to invest into it. I'm going to look after it. I'm going to maintain it. I'm going to take personal responsibility. You see, John wants them to continue living in this central feature in the life of the church and to take responsibility personally for loving one another. The RBC, stay on your guard in this matter. Here's some questions for you to help you bring this down to earth even more. Are you ready to approach church life with this kind of a seriousness in loving one another? I mean, are are you ready to get serious about guarding the internal well-being and the life of your church more? Are you ready to take to the next level the love, care and attention and responsibility that you have for the people you call your church family? To throw out the distant and passive sideline spectating and to replace it with an attempt being an attentive and engaged key player. To take serious the healthy ownership, life, progress and temperature of your church family. Do you have to rearrange your life to make space for this? Do you have to align the budget to free up funds to love one another well with? Do you need to reshape priorities to make space to love others more? Is there someone on your radar? Is there a group or some person to invest in? Is there a grudge or relationship to address? A friendship to restore? A joyful sacrifice to be made? Here's the thing. Are you guarding the life and the love of BRBC in the same way that my cat guards? my children. Let's dig deeper into this. Let's fight for it. Let's watch ourselves in this matter. Love one another. So that's the inside life of the church. Guard the love, be attentive to it, be, be serious about it. So then from the inside to the outside. What about the outside? Well, on the outside, there's traveling teachers. Some are good and should be looked after and encouraged but others are not. Have a look at verses seven and eight. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. Do you see that? Watch yourselves, but you may win the full reward. You see that? Deceivers, also described as the Antichrist. Well, so who are they then? What do they believe? Well, the word Antichrist means very simply against Christ. And John describes them as people who have said that Jesus hasn't come in the flesh. So here's the thing. They are against Christ because they present a different Christ. I'll say that again. They are against Christ because they present a different Christ. And John details two specific ways that they have distorted Jesus. Firstly, they distort the person of Christ. Have a look at verse 7 again. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, we might read that and think to ourselves, well, that doesn't seem like a giant deal. Why is John so caught up on this? Why is he so ferociously rejecting such teaching? I mean, why? Well, we'll cast your mind back to the last part in our seven-part series on the signs of John. Remember, we looked at the raising of Lazarus. And, and as we were studying that, we made the observations that Jesus is, well, Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% human. He's not 50-50 or 80-20, sometimes human, sometimes God. He's fully God and fully human. And because those two stand complete, that means we have a saviour. 
Now, if he's not fully human, then he hasn't taken all that we are to himself to save us. And if he's not fully God, then he doesn't have the power to save, to break sin and death. So when you say Jesus hasn't come in the flesh, you're ending up with a savior that cannot save. The second thing they do is they distort the teaching of Jesus. Have a look in verse 9. Everybody who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So they're distorting the teaching of Jesus. Now, this is, isn't teaching about Jesus. The way this reads is the, the, the teaching that Jesus himself gave. So you see what they're saying. They're distorting the person and the teaching of Jesus. He can't be saviour and he can't be Lord. That's why this is so dangerous. Now, we're not told why they've taken up these positions. We, we don't know whether it's because they, they, they were all about being unique instead of being faithful. Or, or it gave them attention. Or, or, or they themselves were deceived and thought they were being very honest. Or, or they were just mavericks and wanted to be different. We, we don't know. But we do know what John tells the readers what to do with them. And these next couple of verses, 10 and 11, in my mind are all about influence. Have a look in 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, what's John saying here? Simply this. Do not give these people any space. Don't give them a springboard. Not even a crack in the door. Do not let them, do not have them an inch of influence in your life. They've got it wrong and they're deceiving. So he wants the church to be completely attentive to the dangers because John knows that they will pay the price for it if they don't. You hear that? He wants them to, to, to be attentive to the dangers because he knows it's going to hurt them if they don't. Let me illustrate that. Throughout lockdown, I've tried to be a little bit more creative and learn some skills with the freed up time in the evenings sometimes. And for my birthday about a month ago, I got given what I was really looking forward to getting, a sewing machine. Now, I'm still pretty rubbish at, at sewing, so I'm, I, I just practice on little pieces of fabric to work out the settings and try and make things like cushions pretty unsuccessfully, but I'm getting there. But there's one thing about a sewing machine that absolutely terrifies me, and that's that big, fierce needle that really quickly goes up and down. It's really strong, and then nothing's going to stop that needle. And I was thinking to myself, why don't they put guards on this? Because it's just a, it's a, it's a thought that makes my stomach turn that that needle could go through someone's finger. That must be unbelievable. must be excruciating. That must be crazy painful. Why don't they guard against this? And so as I'm sewing and I'm trying to figure this out, I am so, so wary. And I think to myself, I can't get complacent with this needle because that's going to hurt. If that thing gets me, I'm going to pay the price for that. If I'm not attentive, it's going to hurt me. Isn't that what John's saying to the church? If you're not attentive, if you get complacent, you're going to pay the price. And this is really going to hurt. Watch out. So John's concern is that they guard against these deceivers teaching, how they distort Jesus. So the second point is outside. Guard against the dangers on the outside. Guard against the dangers on the outside. Now, this is about influence. So let's think for just a couple of minutes about the nature of, of influence. How does influence work? Well, think about this. Firstly, influence is often progressive. Think about some of the people who've influenced you in your life. Maybe it was a teacher at school. Maybe it was a friendship throughout middle school. Maybe it was a family friend. 
but I'm guessing these influences and the way you were shaped by them didn't happen in one day, but might, might have happened over a term, over a sea, throughout a season, or over a whole year, or maybe even a, a whole childhood, or throughout your 30s and 50s. You were influenced by them. You can see influence is most often progressive. It, it, like, it kind of works like this. If, if you let your kid loose on YouTube and let them watch whatever they want, you don't have much reason to wonder why they start coming out with insane things. You've got an uphill battle to reshape them into goodness and godliness that the Lord has asked you to lead them in. But I'm guessing that didn't start with just one video because influence is progressive. Also, influence is often unnoticed. Isn't that why John calls them to be watchful and to be ruthless about this, to be perceptive and discerning? It's how influence works. It starts with a molehill that ends up like a mountain. It was a snowball at the top, tiny snowball at the top of the slope, but down the bottom of the slope, it's enormous and it's crushing people. Upstream, it didn't seem like a big deal, but downstream, it's much worse and it's going to be far harder to retrace steps. So it's often unnoticed. And lastly, when it comes to influence, you are what you eat. Someone once said to me, and I don't know where they got this from, but they said, James, choose your friends carefully for it is they that you become. It's about influence. And John doesn't want them to be nonchalant about the dangers. He's saying, be ruthless about what you accept, because it is the, this is the stuff that will shape you. It will shape your worldview, your family, and your church. Stay on your guard. Now, we might be in the place where we say, well, phew, I'm so pleased. We don't have these kinds of issues that Second John has. I'm, I'm pleased that we would never face this kind of stuff. It, I mean, it must be so hard for the church of Second John to deal with this stuff. But phew, we don't need to worry about this that much. No one is walking around openly denying Jesus. Phew, we are a little bit more perceptive than them, aren't we? Now, if we said that, we would be falling for the very thing that John wants them to avoid. Think about it. Distortions and deceiving happen far more subtly and covertly than a mere open denial of Jesus. You know, the denial of the person, the importance, significance, centrality, and the accuracy of Jesus happen under the surface. Now, I think this is particularly poignant for us in, in the COVID-19 season and crisis that we're in. I mean, the what we find online is articles, sermons, teaching, personalities, church services, magazines, you, you name it. We have a mountain of content under our noses in front of us on our screens. How do we begin to sift that? How do we be attentive and stay on our guard? Well, I was reading an article this week by Colin Smith. I've really come to appreciate his teaching. He's pastor of Orchard Evangelical Church just outside Chicago. And he does a study in First Peter where it talks about false teachers. And he, he, he emerges with seven questions to ask when you are consuming teaching content. So I want to take you through these questions because I think they apply really well to what John is saying here. First question you need to ask. Where does the message come from? It's a good question because a true teacher is going to source what they say from scripture. A false teacher relies on creativity and to make up their own message. Where does it come from? Secondly, what's the substance of the message? I mean, for a true teacher, God is the end and the foundation. But for a deceiver, God is at the margins or just in the way. Thirdly, what position does the message leave you in? 
closer to Jesus, knowing him more or not? Fourthly, what kind of people does the message produce? Christ-like, sacrificial, gracious, serving, gospel-centered people? Or entitled? Or confused and exhausted? Or egotistical? Number five, what should you, why should you listen to the message? I mean, the true teacher, teacher asks, what has God said in his word for us? The deceiver asks, what do people want to hear? What will appeal to them today? Number six, what does the message, what result does the message have in people's lives? Does the message produce an activation of the fruit of the spirit grounded in the personal work of Jesus? Or does it crush them with morals or free them to lawless living? What result does it have? Uh, number seven, what does the, where does the message ultimately lead you? Does the content make you a more re take you to a more real and faithful and grounded knowledge of what it means to follow Jesus? Or does the content leave you guessing and confused as to who Jesus is or his relevance to your life and our world? Now think about it. Lay those questions against the content that you are consuming. Because during this season, it's before us on our screens in mountains. And we need discernment to not fall asleep at the wheel of our worldviews. We're raising children in a confused and chaotic world. They, we need to give them our attention and guidance to make sure that they don't sleepwalk into the deception either. Standing alongside others in our church family, we need to seek their good and with brave conversation, not passively and silently watch them drift. John's point is simple. Stay on your guard. Now, how does this letter finish? And I love this finish. Verse 12, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy might be complete. The children of your Alexis to greet you. Is this a thrifty kind of John? I'm not going to waste any more paper and ink here. No, no, it's because he's just so longing to see them face to face. And he says to see them would make our joy complete. Oh, I'll have complete joy when we're together. Why would this bring him so much joy? Because he longs so much to see with his two eyes this Jesus-bought church, this family walking in the love of Jesus, standing on the truth of Jesus. And, it, and it's like he's like an older sibling welling up at the sight of a flourishing younger sibling. John longs to see the best for them in the gospel. Do you feel like that when it comes to BRBC? Do you long to see that at BRBC too? Do you consider it a joy to behold your church family walking in the love of Jesus and standing on the truth of Jesus? Are you going to be part of that collective pursuit? Will you stand on your guard? You see, John's concern is that, that love won't be forgotten inside and that truth won't be dismantled from the outside. So John's message is keep going. Don't stop loving one another. Fight for that. Guard it. But also guard against the dangers on the outside. Watch out. Stay awake. Now like my wonderful flea bag of a guard cat, stay on your guard. Protecting and fighting for the vitality and the love inside of our church. But also being watchful of the outside dangers. So may we be a people who stubbornly guard the inside love 
and fiercely guard against the outside dangers to truth. John's message in a nutshell, inside, outside. Stay on your guard. Amen. Well, isn't it amazing that as we look at 1 John written in the, or I'm sorry, 2 John written in the first century, we see John writing to the small church to guard this love and this truth that they, that they have. And here we are thousands of years later, Bradfield and Ruffham as recipients of that guarded love and truth. But now as we go, may you hear these words from the Apostle Paul who writes this. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Go in peace, saints.